morning, church family. There is joy in the house of the Lord this morning. Hey, I've got a few things uh, before the message. So this is, consider this announcements part two. Um, so first, I do want to share uh, my thanks to Tim. Uh, you know, it is really our privilege to be able to partner with you. Um, churches aren't buildings. Churches are God's people. And you and Lorene and the Scriven family and uh, have left such a deep legacy with this church. So on behalf of this church, uh, know how thankful we are for you and for your faithful, many decades of faithful service, your kingdom impact. Uh, grateful for just giving us the, the, the opportunity to partner with you. Uh, everyone is invited to join us as we uh, celebrate and honor Tim this weekend. So right after this service, uh, right in the gathering area, we have a, just a small coffee and dessert reception. Uh, so you're all invited for that. And I do want to thank Bobby, who's the ED of Tacoma IFC, um, and has also been a great partner for us. Um, the work of Youth for Christ, you know, their goal is to bring hope and transformation to Pierce County. Uh, and that aligns so much with our heart as well. So thank you for being here this weekend, Bobby. Um, second is, uh, as you know about Lake City, we love families. And so uh, this adorable child is uh, Amelia Grace Kimbrell. Uh, so join me in just uh, congratulating Cody and Corinne on... Amelia Grace, um, I think they were supposed to be here, so I don't see them if they're here, but uh, congratulations. Uh, Amelia Grace was born on January 10th of this year. Um, the only details, I don't have height and weight details uh, for her. The only detail I have is she is incredibly adorable, so that's the detail. Uh, next, so last month, Randy preached on the importance of biblical stewardship, and we take stewardship pretty seriously here as a church. And so in our bulletins each week and in the quarterly giving statements that we send home, you know, we just try to give you a sense of how we're doing financially as a church. Um, but occasionally we want to be able to do that more publicly from the pulpit out of a spirit of transparency. And so we wanted you to know, church, um, the months of December and January were two of our highest months of giving ever. Um, now, much of that has to do with the fact that currently our attendance is at its highest uh, ever, and so more people means more giving but also I know that a, a number of you have been incredibly generous these last two months. And so we can't do anything at this church without your support. So we want to thank you for that. Um, we're currently ahead of budget and expenses at this point in the year. And you should just know that whenever we have a surplus, we tend to use that just to pay off debt. Um, so at each of the last three elder business meetings, we approved uh, using some of the surpluses to pay off additional uh, mortgage debt repayment. I think last year, we paid off $110,000 of additional debt on top of our mortgage. And as of just seven months into this fiscal year, um, we've already paid off another $84,000 of debt. So um, again, thank you, uh, church family, for your faithful and generous giving. Um, just do know that we will continue to do our best to steward God's resources as well. And then lastly, I am excited to announce that we have a new church logo. Um, logos are used to communicate what we value. And ultimately what we recognize is, you know what, logos don't really represent a church. Right? How we love and how we serve and how we give and how we worship, that reflects who we are. But logos in some small degree do communicate what we value. And so when I joined Lake City in 2003, this was the church logo. Some of you will remember uh, this logo. Um, uh, I love the mountains in this logo, and it represents kind of the Pacific Northwest. Um, there's no cross in this logo. So five years ago, we changed to a more modern-looking logo, and I love the prominence of the cross in our current logo. Um, 
but it also doesn't have anything that uniquely ties it to uh, Pierce County and to Pacific Northwest. And so our desire was to create a logo that communicated two things, our commitment to the cross and our commitment to the community. And so last August, we assembled a branding uh, team internally, uh, worked with a, a designer to uh, develop a few different designs. And then in September and October, I, I visited some Bible studies and some ministry meetings and some small groups and received feedback on some of these designs. Uh, all told, about 100 people provided feedback, and the elders officially approved our current new logo, which is right here. Um, yeah, I love it. The green and the blue represent the trees and the water and the beauty of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the similarity to Seahawks colors, that's purely coincidental. <laughs> the shape of the mountain mirrors the shape of Mount Rainier. And of course, central to this design is the cross. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be updating our website to make it more user-friendly and to incorporate the logo and the design. And so honestly, just thank you to the branding team for, and the, all of those who participated in the focus groups for your feedback. Um, thank you to our designer who specifically asked to remain anonymous, but he knows that we could not have arrived at this beautiful design without him. Um, as a small gift to celebrate this new logo, so as you exit the worship center um, at bistro tables on both sides, um, we have these free refrigerator magnets. Please grab one per family and take one home. And then we have a ton of these vinyl stickers. Take as many stickers as you want, um, but uh, we would just, again, thank you for uh, this. Um, I hope you see that it's reflecting our commitment, again, to the cross and our commitment to uh, the community, to Pierce County and to the Pacific Northwest. Um, more important than the logo is my prayer is that we would continue to live out that ideal of commitment to the cross and the community. So let's clear our minds. And I, I want you... I want you to think of the word power. Right, think of the word power and think of an image that to you represents power. So take a second to do that. Now turn to someone near you and share what image comes to mind as you think of the word power. Okay. What comes to mind as you think about power? Okay. I'm going to ask a few people. Hey, Jimmy. So, Jimmy, what word comes to mind? What, what image comes to mind when you think of power? Uh, Superman. Superman. Superman thinks of power. Wanda, what do you think about when you think about power? The mountains. Okay. Natanya, what do you think about? A dam bursting open with water, right? There's so many images come to our mind when we think about power. Now, when I think of the word power... I remember back to a time at, when I was at Lincoln High School, and I was about a freshman or a sophomore, and the power team came to an assembly. It's an old school reference, so if you remember, so the power team, like in the 80s and 90s, were these, this team of like Christian bodybuilders, and they would go to schools and churches, and they would do these ridiculous feats of strength, and then share some sort of encouraging message. And... Uh, you know, I remember seeing this one dude tear apart a phone book with his bare hands. And then someone else like bent a steel bar over their head. I think somebody like broke a bat over their, their, their knee. Um, so like, like Superman, like I, I thought of physical strength, right? I actually don't remember any of their message, but I remember those things. <laughs> now, some of you might have pictured physical strength or muscles. 
Um, others like Wanda would have pictured like the fury and power of nature, right? An exploding volcano or a, a hurricane. Others, when they think of power, they immediately think of political power, right? Maybe your image of power is a king sitting on a throne. Whether it's physical strength or the force of nature or political authority, power can be many things. And our culture teaches us things about power. But what can we learn about power in the kingdom of God? This weekend, we continue our sermon series, Servant Heart, Kingdom Mind, a journey into life and ministry of Jesus Christ as told through the gospel of Mark. And last week, Dr. Dave Ayer taught on Jesus' call for us to take and receive our identity in Jesus and Jesus alone. And today, we're going to be studying together two scenes in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. And in these two scenes, we're going to learn four things about Jesus and three things about power in the kingdom of God. Now, chapter 9 starts with this, this singular verse. Verse 9 starts, And he, Jesus, said to them, to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, one of the things to remember about God's word is that when they were originally written, they didn't include verse numbers and they didn't include chapters. Um, and so those were added later on to make it easier to reference individual passages. So it's always interesting to see how translators organize and classify verses. Because if you look back at the end of chapter 8, what you see is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. So it would seem that this single verse that stands out here at the beginning of chapter 9 belongs at the end of chapter 8 versus starting chapter 9. And so why is it here at the beginning of this chapter? Well, I think there's a reason for that. So in this verse, Jesus told his disciples two things. He said that one, some of his disciples were personally going to witness the kingdom of God manifested. They'd see the kingdom. And then the second thing they would see as they would see kingdom power. They would see power from that kingdom actually transpire, right? They'd see the kingdom, and they'd see kingdom power. Now, last month, Randy shared this definition of, of what the kingdom of God means. So when we talk about the kingdom, we're going to be talking about that today. Old Testament scholar Graham Goldsworthy said this, this is the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Right? God's people in God's place, under God's rule, living out the way that God wants us to live. That's the kingdom, right? God's followers doing what he calls them to do. And so Jesus told his disciples they were going to see this kingdom manifested. They would see his power displayed. And so I think the reason that this verse starts chapter 9 is the two scenes that we're studying today, we're going to see the coming of the kingdom, and we're going to see that power displayed. So Here's how this first scene starts. This is God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, transfigured. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And so Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And then they asked him, so why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he, Jesus, said to them, well, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. This is the word of the Lord. So verse 2 tells us that after six days, Jesus went up the mountain. And he took with him three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says that if they get to the top of this mountain... It says he was transfigured before them, transfigured. Now, that's not a word that we get to deal with often. The Greek word used for transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho, from which we derive the word metamorphosis, right? So the metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly. You see some transformation happen. And that's what that word means, to transform, to change, to literally change form. So that's what's happening to Jesus on the mountain. We don't know what, but he's changing his form. This word actually occurs at a, a different place in the Bible. So in Romans 12, the Bible says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transformed, same word, transfigured. And so the transfiguration of Jesus means the transformation of Jesus. Now we don't know what that looks like. Only Peter, John, and James, or Peter, James, and John were able to witness this supernatural act that happened to Jesus on this mountain. Now, Jesus' form not only changed, but verse 3 includes this detail. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So whatever happened on this mountain not only changed Jesus, but it transformed the very clothes that he were wearing. Now, remember, so how did Jesus travel back then? Walking around, right? primarily by foot. And were roads paved back then? No. So you can imagine when they wore you know, light-colored robes back then, how dirty and how dusty Jesus' clothes would have been at the end of a journey. Right? How dirty and how dusty it might have been just to hike up this mountain. And yet those clothes were transformed. The Bible uses the word radiant, that the shining like sunlight, that's dazzlingly bright, that described Jesus' clothing. So dazzlingly bright, he includes this detail that no one on earth could bleach them. Right? So supernaturally changed that we couldn't replicate that on earth if we tried. And it leads us to this first point that we learn about Jesus, that Jesus is holy, that Jesus is holy. The primary point being conveyed by Mark in describing the radiance of Jesus's clothing is how clean it was. Now, here's why that matters. Back then, the concept of clean and unclean was fundamental to the understanding of Mosaic law. Because in the law, we see a lot of things that say, hey, according to this rule, this food is clean or it's not clean or this person is clean, or this person is not clean. 
And whenever we see this term unclean in the Bible, it doesn't mean that they were physically dirty. No, when the Bible uses the word unclean in the Mosaic law, it means unholy. Unholy. The Mosaic law's framework about cleanness is really about holiness. That's the connection. Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh noted this. We must understand what we're dealing with as we come to our study because clean and unclean is one of the great issues of the Bible. We must also observe that cleanness and uncleanness is related to holiness. Now, the word holy in the Bible just means set apart. But generally, when we talk about the word holiness, it's what it's set apart from is it's set apart from sin. That's what holiness is. And so in describing Jesus' clothing as radiantly clean, the Gospel of Mark is not making a statement about his clothes. It's making a statement about Jesus, that he was holy. In other words, no one on earth could possibly bleach or clean clothing that dazzlingly bright because no one on earth is holy. But Jesus is. The Bible says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's filled with it. And this reminder of God's holiness should also remind us that you and I are called to live lives of holiness. We're called to live lives of holiness. The Bible says, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We should be holy because God is holy. And so if we're kingdom-minded, we recognize that we're called to holiness. Listen, in this lifetime while we're on earth, we can't be perfectly holy. And yet we're still called to pursue lives of holiness. That means we're called to pursue lives that are lived according to the truth of the word of God. We're called to live lives where we're careful about what we think and what we watch and what we say and how we act. We live lives where we're quick to repent when we do sin. We're called to pursue holy living. The Bible says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That is the calling of the people of the kingdom. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're on the mountain. Jesus is dazzlingly bright. And they see two figures appear, Moses and Elijah. And we'll come back to the significance of these two people in a few minutes. But the disciples, they see these these long dead heroes of the faith return with Jesus. And this was their response. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and Moses and Elijah. And I love this verse, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I low-key think this verse is hysterical, right? That Peter is so scared, he's just blurting out the first thing that comes to his mind. I remember one time, so I was younger, and I have two younger brothers, and we were roughhousing in our room. And in the middle of the roughhousing, we knock over our desk, and it falls crashing to the ground. And so hearing this loud noise, my mom comes screaming into the room, wondering what happened. And so we're just kind of frozen in fear. And then my brother, one of my brothers blurts, the desk fell over. <laughs> By itself. Desks do that. 
Because people will utter, utter nonsensical things when they're afraid. I don't actually think Peter's suggestion was nonsense. There's a reason for it. Peter suggested they set up tents, which can also be translated as tabernacles or booths. Now, booths or tents back then, they were just, they were structures that were bound. They were thin sticks of wood bound together and covered with cloth or branches or leaves. And the reason I think Peter suggested setting up tents is it had to do with one of the main Jewish festivals. And it's the festival of Sukkot, which is also known as the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths. Sukkot is one of three pilgrimage festivals mentioned in the Mosaic Law. And Passover and Pentecost were the other two. And the importance of a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage festival was it was so important that if you were an observant Jew back then and you had the physical means to be able to get to Jerusalem, you would do that every single year to celebrate these festivals. That's how important they were. And during Sukkot, tents were set up for seven days. And every day, in those, every day during those, that week, then people would be gathering with their friends and family They'd be fellowshipping, and they'd be in prayer, and then they would be sharing a meal. That was Sukkot. And Sukkot commemorates the Israelites' 40 years in the wilderness. So after the Israelites fled Egypt, they journeyed to look for the promised land for 40 years in the desert. And so during Sukkot, they set up tents reminiscent of the tents that they lived in for those 40 years. Now, Passover commemorates when God redeemed his people out of Egypt. And so Sukkot commemorates when God redeemed his people from the wilderness. And so you can see Peter here. He sees Moses and he remembers God's redemption of his people out of Egypt. And he sees Elijah, who's known for God's redemption of God's people from the worship of Baal. And then he sees Jesus. And I think he suggested setting up tents because he recognized the second truth about Jesus, that Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus is our Redeemer. So to redeem means to, to rescue, means to transform a situation from broken and bad to whole and right. That's redemption. And redemption is the central story of the Bible. The Bible is the story of a loving God redeeming his people and redeeming his creation through Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Bible, of God taking our brokenness and transforming it into something whole and right through Jesus. And the thread of redemption is tied through almost every story in the Bible. From God's redemption of his people out of Egypt to the promised land, to the redemption of the Apostle Paul's life from persecutor of the church to the greatest missionary who ever lived, to our redemption from sinners bound for death to children of a holy God. Right? The focus of Scripture is God is our Redeemer, that Jesus is our Redeemer. And this reminder of God's redeeming power ought to be an encouragement to us, especially if we're struggling. You know, if you're struggling with grief, we're reminded of the Bible's promise that God is going to redeem us from our pain and one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. If we're struggling with a sin that we can't seem to shake, we're reminded that God, that Jesus died to redeem us from sin and gives us the power to overcome those sins. 
Right? Our God is a redeeming God. That's what we believe. And in Jesus Christ alone do we find that redemption. The Bible says he, God, sent redemption to his people. And he has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Amen. So back to the text. So Peter, out of good intention, he offered to build up some tents for Jesus and Elijah and Moses. And before he can do that, the Bible says this. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice comes out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Before Peter could start gathering sticks for a tent, Moses and Elijah, they're gone. And all the disciples see and hear is the voice of God saying, Jesus only. Listen to him. Jesus told his followers that, they would, that some of his disciples would see the kingdom of God manifested, and these three disciples did. On this mountain, they saw the supernatural transformation of Jesus. They saw the, coming back to, to life the two long-dead heroes of the faith, and they heard God's very voice. Where they saw kingdom power. They saw the kingdom. So it goes back to this question. So why these two? They saw Moses and Elijah. So of all the dead heroes of the faith, why these two? Well, to know this is to Jewish people at that time, Moses and Elijah were considered two of the greatest prophets, if not the two greatest prophets. But I don't think God brought Moses and Elijah to the mountain because they were deemed great people. No, God brought Moses and Elijah to that mountain because of what they each represented. Moses represented the Mosaic law. That's the law named after him, the law of Moses. And Elijah represented the prophets. Moses, the law. Elijah, the prophets. The law and the prophets. And so here's what happened. They see Elijah, the prophets. They see Moses, the law. And suddenly they disappear. And God says, listen to Jesus and him alone. And so the symbolism is clear. That God was stating to them that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets. What do I mean by this? So we say that Moses represented the law. That means he represented God's commandments for living a holy life. Right? If you and I want to know how to live a holy and righteous life, we would look to the law. Elijah representing the prophets means he represents all of the prophecies that God spoke through his prophets about who God is and about what he was going to do. Right? That's what prophecies are. They, they tell who God is and they tell about what God is going to do. And so when we say that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets, we're saying these two things. That one, that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Mosaic law. That only Jesus lived a sinless life. That only Jesus met God's standard of righteousness and holiness. He perfectly fulfilled that law. And then second, he fulfilled all the prophecies. The prophecies are speaking about Jesus. That Jesus is carrying out the things that the prophecies said God would do. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And Jesus declared this of himself. In Gospel of Matthew, he said this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, 
Now, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the prophets. And so they don't make any tense. Right? They hear God's voice, they see just Jesus, and then they head back down the mountain. And as they go down the mountain, the disciples, they're still struggling to process everything that they just seen and heard. But they're also trying to process their, this appearance of Elijah. So they ask Jesus this theological question. So why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So this is coming from a belief at the time that the prophet Elijah would precede the arrival of the Messiah. Prophet Malachi said this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So according to this prophecy, before the Messiah arrived, that God was going to send a great prophet to prepare the hearts of the people for his coming. Now they thought that the actual reincarnation of Elijah was going to happen. And what the prophecy meant was a form of Elijah, another great prophet. Now they had just seen Elijah, so they wanted to know, well, we saw Elijah. Their underlying question was, what does that mean that you're the Messiah? And so Jesus affirmed their understanding. Yeah, Elijah does come first, right? You are right in that. And then he corrects the part of their understanding that was off base. So Jesus said, I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased. Now what he meant by that was, oh yeah, Elijah has come, but it's not the Elijah you saw on the mountain. It's my cousin John the Baptist. Now how do we know this? Well, the Bible tells us. So in the Gospel of Matthew's account of the transfiguration, this is what Matthew wrote. Jesus saying, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. And then it says, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus tells them, yes, Elijah's going to come. It's not that Elijah. It was my cousin, John the Baptist. But by affirming their understanding of this prophecy, Jesus was then answering the subtext of their question. And he was also revealing this other important truth, that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is Messiah. Now we use that word often, right? We Christians talk about Jesus being the Messiah, and I don't think we fully grasp the significance of this. And so the word Messiah in Hebrew is the word Mashiach, and in Greek is the word Christos. Christos is the place where we get the word Christ. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah. That's what that means. And the concept of the Messiah was a fundamental aspect of understanding Judaism. For Jews back then, the Messiah represented the central hope of their faith. Messiah equaled hope. Their hope was that one day God would send his chosen one to deliver them from oppression. And in their mind, that meant deliverance from economic and political oppression. We know, obviously, that it meant a deliverance from spiritual oppression. But by Jesus confirming to his disciples that he was the Messiah, in that context, he was essentially telling them this, I am the Messiah. Your greatest hope is here. The arrival of the Messiah meant your greatest hope is here. Everyone needs hope. And everyone wants to put their hope in someone or something. And my family uh, 
has this ornament that we put up on our tree every year. And it's an origami hope or wish chamber. And you can just open this up. But its purpose is you're supposed to just write down a hope or a wish on a little piece of paper, then you roll it up and you tuck it into this ornament, you hang it back on the tree, and one day you hope that this hope comes true, right? My daughter Angie in, uh, she does, my aunt daughter Angie just made use of this every single year and write a little hope and put it in. In uh, Christmas 2020, she put in that she hoped she would get engaged in 2021, and so maybe this thing works a little too well for my liking, but... But everyone seeks to put their hope in something. We have placed our hope in someone. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that's our hope. Jesus, the Messiah, is our great hope. Our hope is here. And this hope ought to radically change our worldview and perspective. Our hope in Jesus Christ has already turned our, changed our eternal destination, but it also ought to change the reality of how we live. Because where... We understand the hope of the Messiah, the hope of Jesus Christ. It changes and informs every other aspect of our life. And so whatever you're struggling with right now, right, wherever we're struggling, our marriage, our relationships, a health circumstance, career situation, how our children are doing, the state of the world, so many aspects of our lives, we could just give in to despair. Oh, but our understanding that Jesus is the Messiah gives us the encouragement to look beyond despair to hope. Jesus is Messiah. Our greatest hope is here. The Bible says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We have our hope in Jesus. He's our hope. He's holy. He's redeemer. He's the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's Messiah. Knowing these things about Jesus, it takes us to our second scene where we're going to see they've seen the kingdom and now they're going to see the power of the kingdom. God's word says this. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with him? And someone from the crowd answered him, Well, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, Jesus immediately convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of this child cried out and cried and said, I believe to help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could, not, why could we not cast it out? 
And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't say how long Jesus and Peter and James and John were on that mountain. But by the time they came back and returned to the disciples, there was quite a scene there. And they're surrounded by a crowd of people, and the crowd's arguing with the disciples. And Jesus asks them what they're arguing about, and they tell them about this possessed boy who wasn't healed by the disciples. And you might say to yourself, well, of course the disciples couldn't heal the boy. They're not Jesus. They don't have supernatural power. Well, actually, in Luke chapter 11, in that accounting, Jesus actually sent his disciples out, and he granted them supernatural power. I told them to go to the villages and heal people, and people were healed by the, by the touch of the disciples. And so even though it's not mentioned in the earlier chapters in Mark, by this point in the life and ministry of Jesus, you know, the disciples had experienced their own supernatural power under the direction of Jesus. And yet they could not heal this boy. And so what was Jesus' response? He said, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? We're going to come back to this phrase, faithless generation, in a few minutes. But it's clear that Jesus felt that there was something lacking in the people around him. And so they bring the boy to him, and uh, the unclean spirit inside the boy sees Jesus, freaks out. Boy's on the ground, rolling and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy about the child. He's like, yeah, he's had this since, his, since he was young. The father explains the history with the boy, and then we get this incredible exchange. One of my favorite scenes in the Bible. And he says to Jesus, oh, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, no, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love this scene. I love this prayer. And this scene just deserves its own whole sermon at some point, which will happen. Um, but let me, I just want to focus on two things that this scene teaches us about the power in the kingdom of God. So look again. The dad says, if you, can, if you can do anything, look at what he's asking for. Have compassion on us and help us. He asks for Jesus' compassion. He could have just said, you know, if you could do anything, heal my boy. He said, have compassion on us. Because in the father's mind, a person can have power, but if they don't have compassion, they will choose not to use that power. What they want is Jesus' heart. And it teaches us this first point about kingdom power, that power in the kingdom must be used with compassion. Power in the kingdom must be used with compassion. The culture tells us that power in this world is to be used for ourselves, not so in the kingdom of God. Someone with compassion is, is someone who has sympathy and concern for others. That's what compassion means. And again, typically we don't equate power with compassion because generally Power is self-centered. Power is self-directed. So often power is abused because it's self-centered. And not so in the kingdom of God. Power comes with compassion in the kingdom. With great power comes great responsibility. The reason it comes with compassion, it must be used with compassion, is because our God, compassion is one of his primary attributes. Psalm 103 tells us, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Compassionate God. Psalm 135 declares, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Our God is a God of compassion. 
Compassion is what motivates God's servant heart. And because this is so, you and I as his followers, we ought to be compassionate people. In fact, the Bible commands us to that. The Bible says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put on compassionate hearts. If we're kingdom-minded, then we must have servant hearts. And whenever we're placed in spheres of power, our servant hearts ought to drive us to be using that power to lift up and elevate others, not just ourselves. William Wilberforce was an 18th century British politician. He began his political career in 1780. But in 1785, he had a transformational encounter with Jesus Christ, and he placed his faith in Jesus, and everything changed, including his political perspective and agenda. Within a few years, God had changed his heart, and he finally saw the true evil and impact of slavery, and he worked tirelessly to end it. He worked for 22 years. And in 1807, Britain passed the Slave Trade Act, ending slavery in Britain and in its territories. Because rather than using his political power to benefit himself, he used that power out of compassion for others. Wilberforce noted this, it is the true duty of every man to promote the happiness of his fellow creatures to the utmost of his power. Kingdom power must be used with compassion. Secondly, kingdom power, power is rooted in our faith in Jesus. Our power comes from our fact that our faith is rooted in Jesus. I love the man's prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. If this is not a prayer that you have prayed, I encourage you to use it at some point because it's an unbelievable prayer. In essence, this man's statement to Jesus was, Jesus, I know my faith is weak. I know I don't have enough faith. All I have is enough faith to know that you're God and your faith is perfect. And you are faithful, and your power is perfect. So God strengthened my faith. All we need is the minimum level of faith. It's just to come to Jesus. And Jesus, he looked out on this this crowd of people, and he called them a faithless generation. Other translations use the term unbelieving. What he saw in this crowd of people was a lack of faith. And not in this man. This man had enough faith to come to Jesus, knowing, look, my faith is imperfect, but the solution is to come to a perfect God to change and strengthen that imperfect faith. His faith was sufficient enough to be rooted in Jesus and in Jesus' perfect faith, in Jesus' perfect power, and his ability to redeem any situation. Because, look, we all have moments in our lives where we're at the end of our rope, can't do anything else. Hopeless, helpless, desperate. And when we're in that state where we're in that desperation, the best response is to come to Jesus in that helplessness, in that desperation, and ask for God's intervention. In early 2009, my father's body was shutting down uh, due to congestive heart failure, and he was at the UW Medical Center for three weeks, and every day, I drove up to Seattle to spend the day by his side and then drive home in the evening. And I remember driving home one day and just in tears because, you know, it didn't look like he was improving and doctors had tried everything they could do and 
And I just felt so helpless. And I remember driving in that car, and, just, and this was my prayer, God, help. I trust you in this. God, help me to trust you in this. I trust you. Help me to trust in, the, in this. Right? God, help. I trust you. Help me to trust in this. It was my version of, I believe, help my unbelief. And I repeated those three sentences for the entirety of the drive home. Because in our moments of desperation and helplessness, all we need is enough faith to cling to Jesus. And that's enough. That's enough. Whatever we're struggling with right now, Jesus is enough. You're struggling financially. The bills are mounting up. Your job prospects are slim. I believe. Help my unbelief. Is your marriage still so challenging? Tensions are high, issues still unresolved. God, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? Whatever we're dealing with that is beyond our ability to handle, it's not beyond God's ability to handle. We don't have the faith. We don't have the power, but Jesus Christ does. Our faith and power may be lacking, but Jesus is not. Christian writer Tim Challies put it this way. What secures us in our trials is not the magnitude of our faith, but the power of the one in whom we have placed it. Jesus is our greatest hope and he's enough. And so out of compassion and seeing this man's faith in him, Jesus heals the possessed boy. And the disciples, they not just saw the kingdom of God, but just right there they saw the power of it displayed as well. And the scene ends with the disciples trying to figure out where they went wrong, right, and what failed. And the Bible says, and when he'd entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, well, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some translations include the word fasting, prayer and fasting. But Jesus essentially was saying there was something missing in what they were doing. Because it was likely maybe the disciples went out and tried to, you know, touch the boy and said, I heal you in the name of Jesus. Versus saying, God heal him in the name of Jesus. The difference was asking God to intervene with his power. Because Ephesians 6 reminds us that our battle is, not a spirit, is a spiritual battle. Right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. And so the Bible encourages us, well, how do we face that battle? By putting on the whole armor of God. And after putting on the whole armor of God, this is what it says. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Yeah, we're supposed to put on the armor of God, that the belt of truth, the shield of faith, wield the sword of God, which is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. We're supposed to do these things. But it's all undergirded with this foundation of prayer. For the follower of Jesus, our, prayer, our power is not in ourselves, right? Our power is in God. We access that power by coming to him in prayer. Now, prayer is such an important topic. We preach on it several times a year. Pastor Jim most recently preached on prayer at the end of November. If you missed that message, you can find that on our app or on our website. And I'll be teaching on prayer in a little, bit, a little more than a month uh, in early April. But let me just briefly say this, that prayer is our primary means of seeking God's power. When we pray, we come to him in faith. We trust his plans, his power. 
and believe that he could redeem our situation. Our first and best response is always going to God in prayer. I love the lyrics of the song Battle Belongs because it speaks to this, right? Because when we fight, we fight on our knees with our hands lifted high. The battle belongs to God. That nothing can stand against the power of our God. There's so much power in prayer. Jason and Becky Smallbeck are longtime members of LC3. And some of you maybe have been following their journey over the last year and a half. But in September 2020, Becky was diagnosed with cancer. And like many cancer journeys, it's been a roller coaster. At the end of January, Becky had a CT scan that revealed two very concerning areas in her colon. And so concerned about another setback, she reached out to some friends and asked them to pray. And I know the LC3 prayer chain lifted her up. And eight days later, Becky went, on, went in to have this, these concerning areas examined. And she shared this update on Facebook. She said this. The doctor started out by saying, we couldn't find it. It was the apple core lesion, typically an indication of colon cancer. It's also what was on my CT scan. But he told me today he was shocked because this is a rarity. They couldn't find it. Yeah. Jason texted me that morning and said this. So the two masses that were clearly present and visible in the CT scan were nowhere to be found. What was there was gone and clear. Praise the Lord. Yeah. We join the small backs in thanking the Lord for this answer to prayer. And listen, if you're struggling with something, with struggling with anything, please give us the privilege as a church family of joining you in prayer. We would gladly join you in this battle on our knees. The Bible says this, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. The battle belongs to God and so is the victory. Family, you and I are part of the kingdom of God in this world. And as God's people, we have access to his power, a power beyond anything in this world. Right? Nothing in this world, no physical strength, no force of nature, no political authority, nothing can stand against the power of our God. And so let us live like people of the king, people of the kingdom. And the very gates of hell shall not, shall not prevail against us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great truth. We thank you that we are people of the one true king. We have access to the power of the kingdom. Lord, give us just a measure of enough faith to come to you with everything and anything. Lord, for any who are struggling here today, Lord, we're grateful that you answer and hear our prayers. I pray that you would intervene with your redeeming power. Father, I pray that you would show yourself strong in our lives. Lord, we believe. We believe in you. Help us in our unbelief. Let us cling to you always. In the name of Christ, our King. Amen.